Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome, everyone, to a special edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. On this edition of our show, the only place that you can get interviews with all four Final Four coaches, all in one podcast, this is the place right here. Mark View, head coach of Gonzaga, trying to win the national championship as the first team undefeated since 1976. That was the Indiana Hoosiers. So in Indiana's backyard here in Indianapolis, Mick Cronin from UCLA, trying to get a first four to a national championship. Scott Drew, Baylor, unbelievable rebuild job from 03 to now, trying to win a national championship. And Kelvin Sampson, his second Final Four, way back in 02 with Oklahoma. What a rebuild he did at Houston. All four of these men are trying to seek their first national championship. And we've got a Cats ranks on my top 10 Final Four most outstanding players since 2000. But first, we got some news. <laughs> this has been quite a Thursday in college basketball as I made my way from Atlanta to Indianapolis. Two seismic shifts in college basketball coaching, one certainly more than the other. First off, Roy Williams. I don't want to say he was the only one that could save North Carolina, but he definitely saved North Carolina. They were floundering when he took them over. They had players, but they were in a losing tailspin. And since then, he has won three national championships, could have won a fourth had Chris Jenkins shot not gone in. We don't know what would happen in that championship game against Villanova in 2016. So think about this. He won the title in 05, 09, 17, went to a Final Four in 08, four Final Fours at Kansas, 91, 93, 02, 03. He won 903 games. 79 games in the NCAA tournament. Coach, arguably two of the best schools in the country in this sport, Kansas and North Carolina. And he was only going to leave North Carolina for one spot, Kansas. I mean, I guess he could have gone to the NBA, but he was only going to one other college, Kansas. So the court bears his name, but the arena, the Smith Center, that's who he paid homage to. He was constantly trying to in a good way, live in Dean Smith's shadow. He just wanted to represent Dean Smith in the way Dean carried himself on the court and off, doing what was just and right. Dean Smith was really an advocate in the profession during the civil rights movement in the 60s, and then obviously going forward in the 70s. And, and Roy wanted to be like him, and he tried, and he was his own critic, 
There were times when on the court, he would admit that maybe he didn't do the right thing in terms of the way he coached. And we heard that in his news conference on Thursday. The reason for his retirement was he just didn't feel like he was the right person anymore at North Carolina. That is, to, to, to realize that, to know that it's your time to move on, very few people are able to do that. And he was. It wasn't an easy decision. But he saw it over the last two years. Because remember in 2019, they were one seed knocked off by Auburn. The last season was very difficult. A lot of injuries. They had a losing season. They wouldn't have made the tournament had there been one. And then this season, they make the tournament and they get blitzed by Wisconsin. And they were all over the map. There were times when they looked great against Notre Dame and other times and they didn't and lost at home to Marquette. But his style of play was so welcomed by players because get on the break, push the basketball, bucket, dunk, J3. He loved it all. And this is, by the way, one of the best jobs, if not the best job in the country. Fan base is phenomenal. Students, adults. It's the most dominant program fan-wise. People may not realize this in the state of North Carolina. Better than Duke, better than NC State, better than Wake in terms of interest. So Roy, what he accomplished in North Carolina and in his career, Kansas, North Carolina, think about that. All those Final Fours, the three titles of Carolina. But he and Dean Smith, they became Hall of Famers at Carolina. And it's going to be incredibly difficult for someone to follow that. We'll see who it is. Is it in the family? Possibly. But the alums are so loyal. There's just such a tie from Larry Brown to Michael Jordan to Tyler Hansborough to Marcus Page, Joel Berry, Brendan Haywood. I could go on and on. Spanning decades. Phil Ford, Kenny Smith. And that will continue. That's one of the beauties of this program. So... A salute to Roy Williams, who was always great to me. I just had so many great interviews with him. In fact, I just did one with him earlier in the week. There was no sign that this was going to happen. But um, he was just one of a kind. What a career. 33 seasons as a head coach. Three titles. Only coached to win 400 games at two schools. 903 wins, which is third all time. Wow. The other big news, Chris Beard, which is what I thought Texas had to do and did do. And I didn't think Chris Beard could turn it down. So he goes from Texas Tech to Texas. Now, Indiana fans got all over me, but I think Texas is a great job. It just needed the right person. I think Chris Beard can be that right person. As long as they allow Chris Beard to be Chris Beard. Fireside chats, just be Chris Beard. Be yourself. Bring that culture there. Loose, play hard. And all of that will work at Texas. They've got the resources. They've got the brand name. You are the spot. He was, you know, a walk-on, I think, there under Tom Penders. It is the perfect job for Chris Beard. And I think Texas is going to be a major factor now. I really believe that. Texas Tech and Oklahoma both are in a precarious situation because Lon Kruger was so great at Oklahoma. Wait, he brought there, and Chris resurrected Texas Tech. I know some of these say Bob Knight, but Beard took it to another level. Played for the national championship at Texas Tech. So that'll be a very interesting hire. No question about it. Can they still be as relevant as they were? And now Texas, in the same league, has Chris Beard. So we discussed the tournament, not the coaching stuff, but the tournament on the steam room. Uh, That pod is out. It's a pleasure to be on with Ernie Johnson and Charles Barkley. Had a blast the last three weeks. I cannot thank Ernie Johnson, Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, Tim Kiley, Jeremy Levin, 
entire talent team and everyone at Turner for welcoming me as one of their own. I absolutely loved it and hope that that will continue. So I'm now in Indy for the Final Four. You know my predictions. I've been saying from the beginning, Gonzaga's going to win the title. I said Gonzaga versus Baylor. But let's hear from the coaches. Here's Mark Few. Mark, we talked at length about building this team, but I want to go back to the beginning of the season. And I said this on the air that I think people forget that almost your entire non-conference schedule got wiped out. And you made a promise to Jalen Suggs and others that you were going to deliver a high-profile non-conference amid a time when a lot of schools didn't want to play outside of their region. So when you look back to building this undefeated season so far, how much do you go back to what you had to do in days to put together a high-level, highly competitive schedule? It kind of made this season, uh, I I don't know, you know, when you've had 22 of them now or whatever, it made it challenging and almost kind of a different level of excitement to be picking up the phone and wheeling and dealing like you're horse trading. And the cooperative spirit of all the coaches was just amazing. Bill and I put our game together in a matter of days and adjusted things when we played Kansas and set up a thing down in Florida because the uh, the ESPN situation in Orlando got canceled. So we were able to put that together. Initially, we were scheduled to play Tennessee and uh, the Jimmy V up here in Indianapolis. That fell through. So Hugs and I scheduled our game in 15 minutes over the phone. I mean, these things are usually done a year in advance. The Virginia game happened. We, were, we continued to try to put the Baylor thing together, try and try and try, and just couldn't find a date. Tony was great enough to play us the day after Christmas, you know, down in Dallas, of all places. Hey, let's just meet in Dallas. I mean, that, that thing came together. The Iowa game in Sioux Falls in a wonderful uh, facility, the Pentagon, uh, we were able to put that together. And, and all of these just lined up. I think it really energized and juiced up our guys, you know, at a time when, you know, those are the dog days of December a little bit. Thank God for this team and how mature they are and I was literally wheeling and dealing on games. And then also, I got to say, like, Dan Gavitt and a lot of the coaches, uh, some of which who aren't even on this tournament that I was on a committee with, were fighting like crazy to just make sure we had this season. And I'll always remember the kinship and the camaraderie and everybody pulling the rope in the same direction. And you just can't give enough credit to Dan Gavitt and his men's basketball staff for, you know, hanging in there and putting this whole enterprise together. It's been amazing. So the way you guys are playing now, the undefeated season, how much did you guys need those kinds of challenging games early to, like you said, motivate them, to figure out who you were, to then get you to play as well as you're playing now because you started with such a challenging slate early? Well, as you know, I mean, we do this every year. I mean, and that's, that's, that, that is. I hear people railing about our whatever, our conference. But it almost didn't happen this year is my point. You're exactly right. It didn't. But yet, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. And so a bunch of us coaches just made it happen. I mean, quite frankly, that's really what it was. And, and the guy who was pushing every bit as hard as me on the scheduling was Scott Drew. Okay. And, and we had put the Baylor-Gonzaga game. We've been working on that thing since July because we both knew we were going to have great teams. So again, I mean, you're just constantly making these calls and sometimes getting discouraged and then you get picked back up and 
it, it was very necessary. Just it's what we have to do at Gonzaga, and, and obviously it's a recipe and a formula that's been working really, really well. And it's interesting when people still ask about, well, they undefeated or whatever because they do this and that. You, you don't get a number one seed overall, overall, if you don't play a great schedule. And you look at the schedule in whole. You don't just look at league schedules. So uh, it's what we do. It was a lot more uh, chaotic this year to get to the end game where we play all those games. But it was kind of fun and uh, interesting for me because it kind of took my mind off just the day-to-day coaching uh, duties. 24 points a game difference. That's what you guys have done in the Cincinnati tournament. And I compared your team to 96 Kentucky, UNLV of 90, Duke of, uh, I think it was 92, Kentucky of 2015, Illinois of 05. That's better than all of them. How do you explain the way you guys have just absolutely run past in a second gear the competition so far in this tournament? I just think we've been playing pretty much the way we've been playing all year. And we haven't let the tournament pressure or whatever that's around or can be around doesn't seem to, hasn't affected us yet. We've definitely been, you know, what I call in attack mode on both ends of the floor. I think it's important that to acknowledge, I mean, our defense has been really, really good in, in all four of these games because we've played some really high-level offenses <laughs> to this point. Uh, I mean, if you look at Creighton and, and the way SC was rolling and even the, the isolations of uh, Oklahoma, what they've been able to do to people. So, uh, yeah, I just say our guys have been extremely uh, on point with our game prep and then their effort and ability to stick with what we've been doing all year on offense has been great also. So, Mark, obviously no one loves being in this controlled environment. And I think it might have been, Kelvin, I can't remember, someone told me that the difference is that if you'd gone back to campus, you would have had a lot of distractions under normal times. You know, is going back and forth and going back, oh, we're now in the Sweet 16. Now we're in the Final Four, and there's a lot of all that. Then you got to get them back locked in. How has that helped this team remain laser-focused that you haven't had any of that through this tournament? Well, I feel for them that they missed out on all that. It's such a special deal to go back to campus, to feel the love and everything in the sport. And then, gosh, I'll always remember arriving in Phoenix, that first Final Four we went to, and what a big-time deal that was and felt like. But what this has done is it just, I mean, we were close before, but I mean, now, I mean, we've just basically all been living in the same house for 18 days. And uh, look, you can only do so many other things in this bubble. And so you spend a lot of time, the preparation, you are able to meet, you're able to get full attention, watch film and walk through and prepare. And so, I mean, I think that's helped all of these teams immensely. But I mean, we're all living on the same floor. It's like we're just in a big frat, you know, for the last three weeks. So that would be the positive of the uh, the frat experience, you know, amidst the dirty laundry and the I'm like the dad that's making them clean up all the time. Mark, you've had great success against UCLA. Uh, there is one game, I don't mean to bring this up, but I think back to 06, Oakland, Adams, final year in the Sweet 16, really started UCLA's three in a row. What do you remember most about that NCAA tournament game against the Bruins? I remember we were in a good spot, but I think, you know, I, as a coach, everybody knows all leads are not always safe. And they pretty much down the stretch made Every single play that had to go right went right for them, and many didn't go right for us. But, you know, we played UCLA in a Sweet 16 in Houston, like back in 
15. So I, I feel like we've pretty much exercised those demons and it's kind of old news, uh, actually. And then we played several other games. I think we played a home and home with them after that. So, uh, I mean, I think you guys are desperate and scrounging around for stories. <laughs> I don't know. I don't get it. How do you beat them this time? Gosh, you've got to match their toughness. I mean, they have just been physically tough, but their mental toughness has been uh, something to behold. And we really got to do a great job. They're getting superlative performances in just some isolation situations out of Juzang. And Tiger Campbell's been rock solid. And you're going to have to be able to score. A lot of teams have had problems scoring against them. And then also see if we can drive some of these uh, shooting percentages down and some of these, uh, especially Juzang, is playing great. And, and lastly, Mark, I know you've never been focused on being undefeated, but now they've merged. The only way to win a national championship now is to go undefeated. So with these two coming together, what would that mean for them to happen, obviously, on Monday night? Again, I've been pretty consistent with this for about the last month. It's just really not something that's on my mind or on my team's mind. We just want to win this tournament. And if we win this tournament, then we can all, I guess, we'll be able to sit back and reflect on that. But it's literally not talked about at all amongst us. Our guys aren't focused on it. I'm not focused on it. We just want to beat UCLA somehow, some way, and then work our way into that championship game and have a shot at the national championship. And up next, Mick Cronin. Mick, when you took the UCLA job, what was your vision for how fast you could take this program to a Final Four? My hope was, you know, as fast as possible. You know, vision tells you you're going to have to have some future pros on your team and try to load it up and have guys like Russell Westbrook and Kevin Love walking through that door. So I didn't know at first. But uh, I did know that they, there was talent on the roster. There was a pandemic, so you, you go to the Final Four in your first year. Where do you go from here, right? So, but hey, look, you know, you and I both know we've talked. You know, you go to you go to UCLA, you understand there's major expectations, and I ran to it. I didn't run from it. I embrace it, you know. So let, let's uh, let's try to win it. And uh, this is a great start. And uh, we got to give everything we can while we're here now. How were you able to reinvent this team within this season? in a pandemic with no Chris Smith at one point for the rest of the season and then no Jalen Hill at one point for the rest of the season. It's been tough with the reinvention. Also, Johnny Juzang transferred in April. He's finished his classes online at Kentucky. He's 2.3 miles from my house. <laughs> you know, we both live in the Valley, but we weren't allowed to get together in person, NCAA dead period. You know, he's from Southern California, but six months we didn't see each other. So on September 21st, was the first time he got to be with his new teammates. And, you know, you're talking about our leading score. You know, didn't even get to be in our practice gym, put UCLA gear on until September 21st. So it took us some time to get Johnny assimilated. Then you lose Chris, you lose Jalen. Cody's had a high ankle sprain. He fought through it. Then Johnny's ankle sprain uh, doesn't play in the USC game. So, you know, we, we, it hasn't been a smooth road for the Bruins, but I wouldn't change it. I think it's forced us to become tougher, make no excuses, and come closer together, and that's why we're here. So the Pac-12 was actually the last major conference to make a decision to even play this season. How concerned were you that there was even going to be a UCLA season this season? Well, I want to thank the Pac-12 coaches because they've been there longer than me. And uh, some of our veteran coaches got together, and we started literally 
like a daily Pac-12 coaches meeting with just the coaches and a text chain. We all became very close. Uh, it was how do we start the massage and lobby because we felt it was unfair to our kids. Uh, we understood why the decision not to play till January came, but we thought, you know, we thought, what do we got to do? You know, so thank you to, to, to all the guys, you know, because obviously none of us would have been in a tournament except whoever won the conference tournament if we wouldn't have played till January. So thanks to our chancellors for letting us play for the kids' sake. But uh, we did it as a group. You know, one thing that we were discussing on the set was about how in normal times, by game 1920, you start to figure out your team. And we just discussed, you know, the, the hurdles that you had with this group. How much did you sort of figure out this team literally in this postseason as you were playing more games along the way? That's a great question. I think, you know, because we lost some close ones late, you know, we, as a staff, we had to reevaluate scoring late in the game. How do we get Jaime Jaquez more involved offensively? You know, it's a different strategic things. What do we need to do defensively to become more consistent? So we definitely changed some things and adjusted. And we're a much better team since the NCAA tournament. you got to remember, as you know, we played five games. So it's almost like it's been a new season for us. We've played so many games. You know, Mick, you've been on both sides of this. You know, I think back a couple of years ago, the unbelievable comeback that Nevada and Eric Musselman had on you guys at Cincinnati. How do you reconcile, like, one side when you've, you've been the victim, if you will, of an epic comeback and supposed to win and then you don't, versus what you've experienced as the team that's not supposed to win and knocking off a two-seed in Alabama in overtime and then an, a, a Michigan when a shot doesn't go down to beat a one-seed. It's why it's March Madness and it's the best. You know, it's great for fans. You know, it's the best sporting event in the world. But it can be very, very cruel to coaches and players because those wild endings, as you know, we're talking about, somebody's on the other end of those. Whether it's an injury, a wild comeback, you know, all of a sudden a great season drives off a cliff, you know, and here we are. So it feels good to be on the other side of it. I will tell you that, you know, so it, it's a lot of hard work. Look, there's a lot of great coaches have never been here, and I'm well aware of that. 18 as a head coach, seven as an assistant. So 25 years it took me. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends in this business that I consider great coaches, and they haven't been here. So I'm humble about it, appreciative, because I, I know how fragile it is. You did one thing that I think really connected with UCLA when you first got the job of really trying to reconnect a lot of the former players. And there's so many, you know, legendary alums. Uh, some of the greatest players to ever play the game have gone through UCLA. Since you've been on this run, what have you heard from some of those famous former Bruins? Uh, under normal times, you might actually physically see them, but now through maybe some sort of virtual or text communication. Look, as you know, you alluded to, the beauty of UCLA is our tradition. The tough part, there's, we have so many great Bruins that played basketball at UCLA and had unbelievable careers. They're Hall of Famers. You know, Kareem did a Zoom call with our team. It was the neatest thing that the kids have ever experienced over the summer. It was, it was the most special thing we did. We didn't see each other for six months. But, you know, I call them the wooden gang. Mike Warren's a great friend of mine. We got a text chain with Lucius, Andy Hill, and the great Bill Walton. He gets me laughing. But, you know, all, all the way up into the recent guys, you know, Prince Ali and Alex Olszewski played last year for us. So from every era, and I'll say this about UCLA, the coaches, Jim Herrick, Steve Lavin, Ben Hallen, Steve Alford, those guys all reached out. So you feel the love from all angles. You know, somebody told me Reggie Miller's dancing around. 
You know, I, I know Russell's running around. A lot of Bruins in the NBA now, you know. I think we're tied for the most, so I hope they're all wearing their gear. So Gonzaga is off to a record starting their four games. They're beating teams by an average of 24 points a game in these four games in the NCAA tournament. How do you shave that down? Diving into it, I can tell you, obviously, you know, I'm a junkie, so I've watched them play. I'll give you a funny one. We lost an Oregon game to COVID, and Mark reached out to me, and I think they were at Pepperdine. And he said, hey, do you want to play? <laughs> I thought he was kidding. He said, I'm serious. But our Pac-12 COVID protocols may be different. I don't know. It would have been like a day later or something. So I think we both kiddingly said, hey, we can't do it. And he said, well, if we just do it in Indianapolis if we do it. <laughs> so here we are, right? But look, they got a great team. Whenever you can't figure out who their best player is, that's scary. And there's arguments over who a team's best player is. You know, even in the pros, people know who your best player is. And it's a legitimate argument who Gonzaga's best player is. That's how good they are. So I know this, you can't give people layups. You know, they're not going to miss layups, and they get a lot of layups. And that's why they score so many points. Mick, you've had your whole coaching career part of UCLA east of the Mississippi. This is the first Final Four ever with no teams east of the Mississippi. What does that tell you? It's an interesting one with the West Coast angle. I think, you know, college basketball is changing, as you know, Andy, and it's changing quickly um, with the transfer landscape, uh, the mass exodus of guys that put their name in into the NBA draft and they're okay with not getting drafted, uh, which would never have been the case. So change is upon us, and it's truly a year-to-year -year job now to figure it out and put your team and your roster together. But it's great for the West Coast. When you walk into Pauly, how do you not get overwhelmed by 11 banners above you? Uh, I still look up, and my staff and I will be watching film in our conference room, and, you know, you look out at the banners. And we coach at UCLA. So I tell Chancellor Block, like, every three months or so, I send him a message thanking him. There's nothing like turning off Sepulveda on the sunset going to work every day in Westwood. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's awesome. Andy, I park and walk past John Wooden's statue every day. Um, so it's a great honor, but I, you know, you do want to live up to the expectations. So uh, getting to, you know, our first Final Four here, trying to get the pride back, building the empire back, so to speak, that we like to say, you feel pride in that. And, and last thing, Mick, for all of us, it's been hard not to see our parents, for a lot of us, for a year plus, let alone hug them. You finally have seen your dad, but you can't hug your dad. What's that dynamic been like to, to finally be in his presence, but not be able to just give him that hug from son to father? Uh, yeah, the hardest thing, you know, you, you win that game to go to the Final Four. And I go over, I was trying to throw hats to my family, and I almost got arrested. You know, I guess I'm going to transfer COVID on a hat that was sitting on a table. But, uh, it, it, you know, everybody's doing their job. I get it. So... Yeah, it's tough not to be able to, to hug your loved ones. But hey, you know, when you have great parents, you know, I lost my mom in 05, so thank the Lord that my dad's here for this, you know, and you can give back. And everything he did for me, he gets to enjoy this run. It's just awesome. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. All right, on this edition of Katz Ranks here on March Madness, March Madness 365, I'm going to rank my top 10 most outstanding players in the Final Four since 2000. So let's start at number 10. Sean May in North Carolina in 2005. Great team, great recruiting class. It originally was brought in by Matt Doherty and Roy Williams. Two years later, 
coaches that crew to a national championship over Illinois. Hit number nine, Emeka Okafor from UConn. He was the ultimate rim protector. 2004, victory over Georgia Tech. This was a dominant rebounding and shot-blocking team led by Okafor. At number eight, Joe Kim Noah from Florida in 2006. They called themselves the 04s because they came in in 04. That was the first of back-to-back championships for the University of Florida. The last time at a school win back-to-back championships. At number seven, Kemba Walker from UConn in 2011. What a great run he had through the Big East tournament and then winning the national championship over Butler. Number six, a year later, Anthony Davis in 2012 for Kentucky. This was a freshman-laden team led by Davis. He wasn't the most productive player scoring-wise, but he affected the game in so many different ways for the Wildcats, winning that national championship in 2012. At number five, kind of a reversal here, 2012 was John Calipari over Bill Self. In 2008, at number five, Mario Chalmers, Kansas over Memphis, coached by John Calipari. Chalmers hit the shot, heard around the state of Kansas to put the game into overtime at the buzzer. And then Kansas won in overtime, and he was the most outstanding player in the 2008 Final Four. At number four, boy, this team was loaded. Shane Battier in 2001, leading the Duke Blue Devils to the national championship. Victory over Arizona, a loaded Duke team. At number three, the last Big Ten National Championship came in 2000. It was led by Mateen Cleaves of Michigan State. The Flintstones, core of that group was from Flint, Michigan, and Spartans delivered a national championship to Tom Izzo, led by Mateen Cleaves in 2000. At number two, Gary Williams finally won that national championship at Maryland, led by Juan Dixon. They had lost a heartbreaker year before to Duke 2002 against upstart Indiana led by Mike Davis. Maryland wins the national championship. And at number one, Carmelo Anthony, 2003. One year, one title for Jim Beheim. Leads Syracuse to the national championship game. He Warwick, by the way, in that game with an epic block. What a title that was for Syracuse in 2003 as Syracuse, led by Carmelo Anthony, wins the national championship. So that's my top 10, 10 to 1. Carmelo Anthony, number one in my book, most outstanding players since 2000. Let's see who gets it on Monday night. And coming up next, Scott Drew. So Scott, believe it or not, this was destined for this team because you were projected to be a potential Final Four team and a national title contender But the road wasn't straight. There were certainly some twists and turns, especially that long COVID pause in February. What was this journey like to get to this point at the beginning of this season? 
Well, really, I even extend it back to last year. We were on pace to be a number one seed, first time in school's history, have a chance to uh, go to a Final Four national championship a year ago. And everybody that came back this year, uh, this was the goal. And credit them through all their uh, toughness, perseverance to go through COVID pause and other distractions and whatnots that have faced every student athlete this year. And now we're here and uh, we've reached our goal and dream of being in the Final Four and having a chance to cut down the nets and be the champ. How long did it take for this team to get back to the way you were playing before the pause? That was really, uh, from talking to coaches, usually everybody said four games over a two-week period where you had practice days. And with us, once we had the pause, we came back and played, I think, six games in 14 days. So it was play, prep, recover, and no practice time. And it wasn't until after we lost to Oklahoma State in the Big 12 tournament where we were able to really practice. And at that point, we returned to our defensive uh, habits and were able to review our rotations and our closeouts. And, and because of that, we're still playing today because our defense is back to what it was. Every team that gets to the Final Four, especially a title contender, has that one game. And so far, that game certainly was villain over for you guys. Uh, what did that tell you about this group that they were down, looked like potentially out before coming back? Well, first, you got to give a lot of credit to Jay Wright and Villanova because they're one, two out of the last four national championships, and you knew they wouldn't go away easy. And I really credit our guys for coming out of the locker room and taking that game because uh, Villanova wasn't going to beat themselves. And the maturity and the experience and not to panic, but to just take it one possession at a time and be successful is why we're still playing. The guards. You've had a lot of teams at Baylor where you've had great length, and you still do, but where, you know, I'm thinking back to that other Elite Eight where it was sort of the long, rangy, athletic guys. Your four guards, Macy Oteague, Jared Butler, Davion Mitchell, Adam Flagg, they're, they're as good a quartet defensively and offensively as we've seen in a long time. What makes each one of them so special? What's great about them is they all collectively bring their own talents and abilities. They all do something different. But when you put them together, I think they feed off each other and they're even better. And what I mean by that is when Maceo's going, Davion and Jared find him and make sure that he's getting touches. When Davion's going, Jared and Maceo keep encouraging him to take over and making sure he stays aggressive. Same thing with Jared and the fact how much they love one another makes them that much better. But all of them can get their own shot. All of them are great three-point shooters. All of them can create for their teammates. And all of them are high-character great kids. Davion told me uh, after this Elite Eight game, that Mark Vital actually told him basically how to become a better defender. What did you hear or witness that kind of a conversation? Mark's been around for five years, and he's been a phenomenal defender since he's been here. But uh, his leadership and his growth on how he's passed on his wisdom and helping our, our players and the younger guys, when he sees things, he goes and tells them. And he's a guy that really plays a lot on uh, instinct, emotion, desire. But technically, he really uh, studies the game and helps our guys out. And we're a better defensive team because of his coaching. So I, I've known you for a long time. I was back, way back, when you got to Waco. And this was arguably one of the most difficult rebuild jobs in college basketball history. If I had gone back to talk to that Scott Drew back in 03 and told him in 2021, you're getting to the Final Four, what would that Scott Drew have told me? About time. I mean, we went to the Elite Eight in 2010 and 2012. You're Sweet 16 several other times. So, but, but I can tell you one thing, Andy. You still look the same. I've lost a lot of hair. But I can tell you it's that much sweeter being close 
We lost to the champion Duke in 2010, Kentucky in 2012. We've lost several Sweet 16s to teams that have gone to Final Four. And it's that much more sweeter and more enjoyable for our staff to know that uh, we've been on the losing side and you just cherish it that much more now that you're on the winning side. I saw on Monday night, you pointed to your dad. You know, he was in the stands and I know how close your family is and I was with them. Your parents, Homer and Janet, when they were going through their really rough cancer stretch in 2011, what do you think this means to Homer to see his eldest son in the sport that he brought you up in, coach a team to the Final Four? Well, I can kind of imagine because when my brother's team plays, I get that nervous and that excited. It's more emotional when I watch him play than when we play. And I can only imagine my dad, it's that much worse or or more. Uh, And it's amazing how calm he stays. But without him, obviously, my brother and I wouldn't be where we're at today. And as good a coach as he is, we love him that much more as a father. And my mom, hopefully, uh, she traveled the first weekend, had to take this weekend off. Hopefully, she'll be back here and going back to when she first got diagnosed with cancer and she's beaten it twice now the job you did with them uh, and that's why you got adopted and now we're we're related and you're in the fam but appreciate all that you did to help support them during that time all right sort of a hard segue here but you're going against at least historically two old southwest conference rivals here in houston and baylor how do you beat the cougars and get to the national championship game Well, even deeper than that, you know, we have Coach Alvin Brooks on our staff, and his dad is on the Houston staff. And it was great because both of them went on the same Elite Eight, Final Four courts together. And then uh, Coach Brooks, Papa Brooks, was waiting for us in the hotel afterwards to greet us. And uh, I'd left a note on Houston's uh, board before their Elite Eight game. So we've been cheering for each other. But now I know little Alvin, our coach, said that, After Tuesday, he can't talk to his dad anymore, so I guess it gets serious. I told his dad, I I don't have that rule. I'm going to say hi to him every time I see him in the hallway. But you're right. It's going to be old Southwest Conference days. It's great having two schools from the state of Texas in the Final Four together because there's so many great players and great coaches in Texas, so it's great to have that state represented. But nothing but the utmost respect for uh, Coach Sampson. He's got his son on the staff, and then obviously Coach Brooks and our Coach Brooks. All right, so how do you beat them? Well, first of all, they're not going to beat themselves. They're one of the toughest teams in the country, most disciplined, and Coach Sampson always finds the matchups that benefit him. So you have to beat them, and I think we have to be really efficient in whatever we do because uh, uh, anything that we do to any self-inflicted wounds, they'll take advantage of. And the fourth of our Final Four coaches, Kelvin Sampson. Kelvin, let's talk first about this team's defensive mindset. Clearly, in the games leading up now to the Final Four, defense has been what has gotten you to this point for sure. Uh, Where has that mindset come from to make sure that you always can take away that best player and what that other team does? Every team has a way to win the game. When you start building your team, a coach has to look at his team and say, where's our strengths? What is it we're good at? And that's where you, you figure out which end of the quarter you're going to win from. You know, when you look at Gonzaga, clearly they're a uh, unique, once-in-a-generation type offensive team. That's where they're going to win. I don't have a once-in-a-generation offensive team. So we've got to figure out how to balance the playing field, and we do it with our defense and rebounding. Everybody talks about defense, Andy, but you can't talk about defense without talking about rebounding. The most important part of a defensive possession is the rebound. You can play 29 
perfect seconds of uh, defense, get them to shoot and miss. Well, if you don't get the rebound, you just wasted 29 seconds. So we do this perfect defensive drill where I put three minutes on the clock and they have to play perfect defense until they get the rebound. And they have to do it for three consecutive minutes. There's a 30 second shot clock. Let's say the other team shoots it at 25 and they get the rebound. Okay, well subtract 25 from three minutes. Okay, that's what they've got left. Okay, now, now you're into your second possession. You get them to shoot and miss. They get the rebound. Okay, you got to start back over at three minutes. So you've got to learn to play three consecutive minutes of perfect defense, which means the defensive rebound becomes the most important part of the uh, possession. And we do that religiously over and over and over. Some days I put 15 minutes and it lasts an hour. Some days I put 30 minutes and it lasts 75 minutes. And I'll say, look, we're not leaving until you get this done. So you decide, your attitude will decide how long this is or how short it is. So they, they, learn, they learn to finish possessions off with rebounds because I knew that was going to be important. Just like on offense, I knew that the most important part of that possession for us was going to be the rebound. You know, we talk about unscripted points, uh, fast break points, points off turnovers, and second chance points. We have to be really good in those three areas. Last night, we had so many good looks, we couldn't make shots. We've had nights where we made a lot of shots and looked good, 80s, 90s. Well, last night, we couldn't throw it in the ocean if we're standing on the shore. But every time we missed it, we went and got it. That's part of that perfect offensive possessions. We put a bubble on the rim, and every time you shoot it, it's going to be a miss, and the offense has to find a way to go get it. And we call it our bubble drill, where you get two points for an offensive rebound, one point for a defensive rebound. First team to 10 wins. So by incorporating those drills, we're building a mindset of how we're going to win. We're going to finish stops with defensive rebounds, and we're going to finish offensive possessions with offensive rebounds. And that builds a toughness, uh, that builds a mentality uh, that's sustainable no matter where you go. And we've been good at that all year. And how much has that played into your ability to finish close games? I, I think back to the two Memphis games and certainly in this tournament, the Rutgers game. Yeah, I think there's a uh, we've earned it mentality with us. Our kids say a lot in the huddle, we're built for this. You know, we're built for this moment. I even hear Grimes saying it. He doesn't say anything. Grimes will say it. Justin Gorham will say it. Clearly, Dejan Giroux will say it. But our kids believe it. And if you believe in something hard enough, you almost can believe it into reality. Our kids are so confident in those moments. Let's take the three-minute drill. They're at two minutes and 45 seconds. Now, for 15 seconds, we can't screw up. We can't screw up. We can't have a blow-by. We can't miss a coverage call. We've got to be perfect in our help side. When the ball goes up, we got to block out. we got to rebound. They're so used to doing everything right that on that last 15, they have to, or they're going to start over at three minutes again. And I think they use those moments for the big moments when everybody's watching. It's the moments that nobody's watching them prepares them for the moments when everybody is. Why have you been such a great destination for players to get, I don't know if I'd say that second shot, but maybe to really see them blossom? And obviously in this case, it's, it's Giroux and Grimes especially, their second school, and obviously they're having their best years? Well, first of all, you give them all the credit because th they have to endure 
through some tough days. And I think when you get a kid on the rebound, he's already left one program. He doesn't want to go to another. So I'm going to be allowed to coach him different than the first guy. My tone, my way of holding kids accountable, I've got a little bit longer rope now. What are you going to do, transfer again? There's a lot of that, I think. But also, I think they know that um, in Quentin's situation, for instance, his parents, I think, felt like he needed what our program was about. Accountability, toughness, togetherness. He needed to be somewhere where that was the second time. The first time, he had the same thing. But the first time, sometimes, you can't get out of your own way. Second time, you do. So most of these kids were in great. They, they chose the schools for the right reasons because I'm the bounce back guy and I'm okay with all that. I have no ego about any of that stuff. You know, Quinn came from a Hall of Fame coach. Bill's a Hall of Fame coach. I'm just another guy. I'm just the next coach for him. But I believe in what we do and Quinn's parents believed in it too. Uh, I'm not sure Quentin did it first, but um, he accepted me as much as I accepted him. And that was the only way it was going to work. And I can say the same thing with Dejan. Dejan reminded me of a baby giraffe. that just dropped out and he's, you know, it's wobbly. He's walking here, he's walking there. It's just no control. I told Dejan, I said, if I put you on a three-on-one break, you're guaranteed to make the wrong decision every time. And when you do make the right decision, you're going to screw that up too because he's so wild. But every kid is a project, but they're their own separate project. And you have to look at them for who they are and coach them separately. Now, everybody has uh, uh, the rules of the program, but you don't treat everybody the same. You, you have to get to know the kid before you can coach him. And that's, that's always been the fun part for me. Calvin, I've known you for a long time, you know, back to Washington State, uh, getting to know you, you know, whatever that was, 30 years ago. And, I, and I'm thinking back to a time at the, I think it was 02 Final Four, uh, Oklahoma. I remember sitting, I think, in your suite and, you know, a young Kellen, a young Lauren, and, and Karen was there. And, and I think back to that part of your career, your life, to everywhere you've been since then. I mean, this has been quite a journey from Oklahoma to Indiana to, you know, dealing with the NCAA stuff, to going to the NBA, to the Bucks, to the Rockets, to rebuilding this program that was playing at Hoffines that was archaic, to having to really get people to actually come to the game. This has been really remarkable, this arc that you've been on. How would you describe the journey that you've been on since the last time that you were in a Final Four? My mother was really smart. She was the director of health services at a university. And, um, you know, there's something that she said that I've just always kind of had as my base. Good things happen to good people. I never stopped being a good person. That never changed. You know, I, I enjoy helping others. I live my life to help other people. That's what I love about coaching. You choose this profession, but you don't choose what happens. You have to deal with what happens. And whether it's something good or something bad, the relationships you make along the way. Like a critical point for me was in 2002, I was selected to be one of the assistant coaches for the uh, USA World Championship team. George Carl was the head coach. Uh, Greg Popovich, Mike Montgomery, and myself were the three coaches that were selected by USA Basketball. Well, through that came a, a lifelong relationship. I, we texted each other probably for 10 minutes last night, uh, Greg Popovich. And at critical junctures of my life, he's always been there. He's not just been a friend. He's been 
someone that believed in me. And we all need someone to believe in us. Like we have to believe in others. You know, those things were important along the way. But I've learned, I've learned so much. I've learned so much about life, about coaching, why you coach, never losing sight of why you coach. Being in this bubble, I, I think is a great metaphor for what coaching is. You know, we don't know what's going on in Houston. You know, through social media, we, we see the watch parties and the bar scenes and the outdoor get-togethers and all across the state. But here we are in a bubble. We don't know what's going on, but that's coaching. You know, you just put your head down and coach your team, develop your kids, make sure they're doing the right thing. And if they're not, hold them accountable, never lose sight. That is the only way you can succeed. You don't accidentally succeed. You, you, you fail your way into it. But by failing, you will succeed. We were struggling with that one-three-one, not because we didn't know what to do. Is that maybe from a skill set standpoint? You know, we're playing basically with two threes and a two, and uh, the size of that thing. And they put that big kid in the middle, and that kind of stymied us. And we kept trying to figure out, okay, forget a normal one-three-one offense against that trap. We got to figure out something else. You know, it's not just what you see, it's what you don't see. So what, what are we not seeing here? And we finally figured it out, but it only mattered because somebody made a shot. Quentin made two big shots. But you know what we kept doing, Andy? We kept offensive rebounding. So we always went back to our base. And I think that's what life and coaches is. Go back to your base. If you're a good person, you know you're a good person. Believe in yourself and that'll help you go forward. And, and to that point, you know, I could see that emotion with Kellen and Lauren. You know, they love you so much. They're incredibly loyal to you like you are to them. And Karen's face in the stands. I mean, that was an embrace. That was like a decades-long embrace that you guys have during that. Can, can you just describe what that hug was like? For me, it was so much appreciation. You know, I just, you know, you appreciate the opportunities you have in your life, um, but the most important thing was I had Kellen and Lauren there to share it with. And if you don't have family to share special moments with, high school graduation, college graduation, weddings, anniversaries, birthdays. Last night was 4th of July, Christmas morning, happy birthday all rolled into one. And I got to do it with my family. Doesn't get any better than that. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. Thanks to all four coaches for taking the time with me this week as they prepare for the national semifinals here at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. I know we're going to talk soon. Enjoy the games. Stay safe, everyone. Everyone.